Today's title is Money Changes Everything. Money changes everything? Agree or don't agree? Yes or no? Must be yes. <laughs> okay, let me try this experiment, okay? Okay, test number one. You are given $6. Now, you can now decide, based on the $6 that you've been given, how much you would give to a future anonymous receiver. Somebody you don't know, you don't know their background, you don't know anything. How much of that $6 that you have been given would you give to this stranger? It can be any amount, any amount. It can be zero. It can be zero, it can be six. Entirely up to you. So would you put a number in your mind now? We'll come back to it later. Okay, just put a, play along, uh, play along. Put a number in your mind, okay? Out of the blues, you get $6. How much of that $6 would you give away? And we'll come back to it later. Now, test two is a little twist to that. The idea is that you are the receiver from someone who has participated in test one. Okay? Somebody got $6, then they gave uh, two. And, and, and you are the receiver. You are the recipient. Okay? You could have received $0 from some greedy receiver. Uh, uh, yeah. Greedy guy who received before you now give you zero. Or you could receive $3. Okay? So, the first one, maybe you call that guy who gave you a greedy giver. Okay? Greedy giver gives zero. An equitable giver gives out of six, he gives you three. Okay? Fair and square. Right? He gives you three. And the third one is that you get a generous giver who gives you all $6. Okay? Now that you have received this amount, you are given another $6, and how much of that would you give? So, would you be influenced by what you have received? Okay, for some of you who might have seen my Facebook, um, I posted a TED talk. Uh, I, can't, I, do, I, can't, I did not research what TED means, but it's a very famous thing. People talk for about 10, 20 minutes uh, about all kinds of topics in the world. Usually, it's very good. I posted it on my Facebook last Monday, and I found it in the midst of preparing for this sermon. And the title of this talk is, Does Money Make You Mean? You know, does money make you a nasty person? The presenter is a guy called Paul Piff, P-I-F-F. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Behavior at the University of California in Irvine. Okay, so let's play the video. I want you to, for a moment, think about playing a game of Monopoly. Except in this game, that combination of skill, talent, and luck that help earn you success in games as in life has been rendered irrelevant because this game's been rigged, and you've got the upper hand. You've got more money, more opportunities to move around the board, and more access to resources. And as you think about that experience, I want you to ask yourself, how might that experience of being a privileged player in a rigged game change the way that you think about yourself and regard that other player? So we ran a study on the UC Berkeley campus to look at exactly that question. We brought in more than 100 pairs of strangers into the lab, and with the flip of a coin, 
randomly assigned one of the two to be a rich player in a rigged game. They got two times as much money. When they passed go, they collected twice the salary. And they got to roll both dice instead of one. So they got to move around the board a lot more. <laughs> and over the course of 15 minutes, we watched through hidden cameras what happened. And what I want to do today for the first time is show you a little bit of what we saw. You're going to have to pardon the sound quality in some cases because, again, these were hidden cameras. So we've provided subtitles. How many 500s did you have? Just one. Are you serious? Yeah. I have three. <laughs> I don't know why they gave me so much. Okay, so it was quickly apparent to players that something was up. One person clearly has a lot more money than the other person. And yet, as the game unfolded, we saw very notable differences and dramatic differences begin to emerge between the two players. The rich player started to move around the board louder, literally smacking the board with their piece as he went around. We were more likely to see signs of dominance and nonverbal signs of display, uh, displays of power and celebration among the rich players. All right, we had a bowl of pretzels positioned off to the side. It's on the bottom right corner there. That, that allowed us to watch participants' consumatory behavior. So we're just tracking how many pretzels participants eat. Are those pretzels a trick? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so no surprises. People are on to us. They wonder what that bowl of pretzels is doing there in the first place. One even asks, like you just saw, is that bowl of pretzels there as a trick? And yet... Despite that, the power of the situation seems to inevitably dominate, and those rich players start to eat more pretzels. I love pretzels. And as the game went on, one of the really interesting and dramatic patterns that we observed begin to emerge was that the rich players actually started to become ruder for the other person. Less and less sensitive to the plight of those poor, poor players, and more and more demonstrative of their material success. More likely to showcase how well they're doing. I so much money to take me for her. I'm going to buy out this whole board. You're going to run out of money soon. You're pretty much untouchable at this point. Okay. And here's what I think was really, really interesting. Is that at the end of the 15 minutes, we asked the players to talk about their experience during the game. And when the rich players talked about why they'd inevitably won in this rigged game of Monopoly... They talked about what they'd done to buy those different properties and earn their success in the game. And they became far less attuned to all those different features of the situation, including that flip of a coin that had randomly gotten them into that privileged position in the first place. And that's a really, really incredible insight into how the mind makes sense of advantage. Now, this game of Monopoly can be used as a metaphor for understanding society and its hierarchical structure, wherein some people have a lot of wealth and a lot of status, and a lot of people don't. They have a lot less wealth 
and a lot less status and a lot less access to valued resources. And what my colleagues and I for the last seven years have been doing is studying the effects of these kinds of hierarchies. What we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's levels of wealth increase, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. And their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increases. In surveys, we found that it's actually wealthier individuals who are more likely to moralize greed being good, and that the pursuit of self-interest is favorable and moral. Now, what I want to do today is talk about some of the implications of this ideology of self-interest, talk about why we should care about those implications, and end with what might be done. Some of the first studies that we ran in this area looked at helping behavior, something social psychologists call pro-social behavior. And we were really interested in who's more likely to offer help to another person, someone who's rich or someone who's poor. In one of the studies, we bring in rich and poor members of the community into the lab and give each of them the equivalent of $10. We told the participants that they could keep these $10 for themselves or they could share a portion of it if they wanted to with a stranger who's totally anonymous, they'll never meet that stranger and the stranger will never meet them. And we just monitor how much people give. Individuals who made twenty-five, sometimes under $15,000 a year gave 44% more of their money to the stranger than did individuals making $150,000, $200,000 a year. We've had people play games to see who's more or less likely to cheat to increase their chances of winning a prize. In one of the games, we actually rigged a computer so that die rolls over a certain score were impossible. You couldn't get above 12 in this game. And yet, the richer you were, the more likely you were to cheat in this game to earn credits toward a $50 cash prize, sometimes by three to four times as much. We ran another study where we looked at whether people would be inclined to take candy from a jar of candy that we explicitly identified as being reserved for children, (laughs) participating, I'm not kidding, I know it sounds like I'm making a joke, we explicitly told participants, this jar of candy is for children participating in a developmental lab nearby. They're in studies, this is for them, and we just monitored how much candy participants took. Participants who felt rich took two times as much candy as participants who felt poor. We've even studied cars, not just any cars, but whether drivers of different kinds of cars are more or less inclined to break the law. In one of these studies, we looked at whether drivers would stop for a pedestrian that we had posed waiting across at a crosswalk. Now, in California, as you all know, because I'm sure we all do this, it's the law to stop for a pedestrian who's waiting across. So here's an example of how we did it. That's our confederate off to the left posing as a pedestrian. He approaches as the red truck successfully stops. In typical California fashion, it's, it's overtaken by the bus who almost runs our pedestrian <laughs> over. Now here's an example of a more expensive car, a Prius driving through and a BMW doing the same. So we did this for hundreds of vehicles 
on several days, just tracking who stops and who doesn't. What we found was that as the expensiveness of a car increased, (laughs) the driver's tendencies to break the law increased as well. None of the cars, none of the cars in our least expensive car category broke the law. Close to 50% of the cars in our most expensive vehicle category broke the law. We've run other studies finding that wealthier individuals are more likely to lie in negotiations, to endorse unethical behavior at work, like stealing cash from the cash register, taking bribes, lying to customers. Okay. Amazing, isn't it? I think this ought to make us pause and think about ourselves, evaluate ourselves. I think I can seriously say that members here in PPH are among the richer segment of Singapore society. If there were a 50%, many of us would be above the median 50%. And if Professor Piff's research is true, then as we get more wealthy, and I quote him, our feelings of compassion and empathy goes down, and our feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and our ideology of self-interest increases. And wealthy people are more likely to moralize greed. That means to say that greed is good and self-interest as favorable. And less likely to help others, to be pro-social, as that term goes, and more likely to cheat and break laws if it suits them. You think that's true? Maybe, ah, that's America. You think that's true? If I look around, okay, my own experience, anecdotal, if you walk around and you see cars that are illegally parked in Singapore, what kind of cars are those? Usually the more expensive ones. Okay, I don't want to name particular brands, right, because people here also drive particular brands. Okay, question is, what is money? What is money? We have a tendency to deify, that means to make money a god, or to demonize money, you say money is a demon. But we say, I don't love money. I don't love money. I should be okay, right? And, and money is supposed to be neutral, right? It's just a means of exchange, right? But I think there is something mystical about money. Jesus even personified money by calling it a proper name, mammon. Matthew 6, verse 24. And money does something to us. It changes things. It does change it. When you have it, or when you do not have it, or when you have lots of it, it, there is this hidden way of money arousing greed in us. And we know that greed, greed is one of the seven deadly sins with pride and envy and gluttony and lust and anger and sloth, laziness. Now, I'm... Coming round to 57 years old soon, and I've come across many confessions, or at least honest acknowledgements, and among many requests for prayers. And you hear things like, Pastor, pray for me. I have a pride issue. Uh, Pastor, pray for me. I I have a lust problem. I'm into pornography. Uh, Pastor, pray for me. I'm, I'm anger. I have a rage problem. But I have never, never come across a person who comes to me and says, Pastor, pray for me. I have the sin of greed. 
Come to think of it, nobody has ever come to me also to say, Pastor, pray for me. I have the sin of gluttony. Which is, I think, just another form of greed. So what is greed? Some definitions for you. Another word for greed is avarice. Uh, A-V-A-R-I-C-E. It is an excessive or an insatiable, that means you cannot be satisfied, insatiable desire for wealth or gain. Or it is when your desires for wealth causes you to behave in, a behave in a way that is either destructive to you, yourself, or to people around you. Or I like the very simple one. Greed is self-interest taken to extremes. It's almost impossible to measure. Most countries have a poverty line. right? If your income is below this number per year or per month, you are officially uh, uh, poor, a poverty line. No country that I know has a greed line. Right? Above this line means you're greedy. And I once told this story about a pastor's conference where there were like 200 pastors. It's a true story. Uh, I think a Habitat for Humanity guy walked up to the podium and he spoke. And then he asked one question before these 200 pastors and he says, when does it become sinful? How big a house, uh, how big must a house be before it becomes sinful for you to live in it. Then there was silence from 200 pastors. And then one pastor from the back says, when it is bigger than mine. <laughs> and you get that sense, right? You are sinful. You are greedy. When your house is bigger than mine, I'm okay, you're not. You are sinful. You are greedy. When your car is bigger than mine, I'm okay, you're not. And it's so like this counterfeit God of romantic love that we looked at last week. This counterfeit God of money is, is insidious. It's so well camouflaged. It is so hard, maybe even impossible to detect in ourselves and let alone acknowledge that, yes, we have a counterfeit God of money. So let's go back to test one, okay? Let's go back to test one. Uh, in our experiment... And I got this test out of this uh, research paper from the Journal of Experimental Psychology, published just last year. And there were 100 participants, equal number of males and females. The average age was 23 years old. What was that number? You're given $6. How much would you give away to a stranger? So bring that, money, uh, that number back from your memory. Okay, I hope you, you, you play along with the game and fix a number. And in this experiment of 123-year-olds, that number was $2.40. What is your number? And I also wonder if I were able to categorize PPH members here from poor to rich, would rich members give more than poor PPH members? Or would it be like Professor Paul... Piff mentioned earlier, he, he did another experiment, right? The, the, the $10 experiment. And he found that um, those who were six to eight times poorer in annual salary gave 44% more. So the, the poorer gave more than the richer people. Okay, so in case you think you've come to the wrong place uh, this morning, that you are attending a lecture on social psychology, let me bring you back to church Okay, and assure you that this is a sermon after all. Let's turn to the Bible. 
In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And how true that is, because no one I know thinks or even acknowledges that he is greedy. Even I don't think I'm greedy. No one here, I believe, thinks that he loves money. Our own heart deceives us. What did the Lord Jesus have to say about this? In Luke, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The context there was a man approached Jesus to arbitrate the inheritance that he has received uh, versus his brother. So the rules of inheritance, I think, in a Jewish society is, is quite straightforward. It's quite simple. Uh, but maybe this man wanted more, or maybe his brother cheated him. It's not clear. And then Jesus, in that context, said, watch out. Be on your guard. <clears throat> so are we watching out and are we on our guard? Let's turn to the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And let's read that story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, so says the Bible. What would we say? Filthy rich. I think Zacchaeus would have preferred the term high net worth individual. And he got rich not just by being any tax collector, but by being the chief tax collector. He owns the franchise. He was a hated man, a traitor to Israel. It would be like some Singaporean working for the Japanese during World War II and getting very rich by helping the Japanese to torture uh, Singaporeans. Okay, now let me refer you to another scientific paper. This one is called The Culture of Affluence, Psychological Costs of Wealth, uh, Material Wealth. And I, from this paper, I learned a new term. It's called Affluence Unhappiness. The unhappiness of being wealthy. And I believe Zacchaeus had affluence unhappiness. He was a hated man. This paper also talks about the affluence or the acquisition of wealth as a process that is similar to addiction. That wealth is addictive. Remember last week we talked about Jacob and Leah sort of being addicts themselves? The pursuit of wealth is equally addictive if not more. And you may say that Zacchaeus was an unhappily addicted to affluence. 
Okay, time for me now to show you the results of uh, test two. Remember test two? That uh, you were the recipient of a greedy person, a neutral person, or a generous person. And then after that, you have $6. Now, how would you give after you have been subject to generosity or to greed? So remember, give only situation, you will give $2.40 without influence. If you receive $0, you are subjected to greed, you will give only $1.32 in this experiment. If you receive $3 and then you're given $6 to give away, you will give $3.38, more than $2.40. If you receive all $6 and now you have another 6 you will give just a little bit more, $3.71. Those who receive less as a result of greedy givers become themselves greedy givers because greed begets greed. And in a greater or more significant way than even generosity begetting generosity. The difference there is way too large. $1.32 versus $3.71. So all you rich and, dare I add, greedy people out there in PPH, you, 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 I think you'll have enough of negativity today, okay? We're going to stop that right now. Huh? So what do we do? What do we do? Professor Piff asked that same question after all his research. So let's look at part two of that video. So what do we do? This cascade of self-perpetuating, pernicious, negative effects could seem like something that's spun out of control. And there's nothing we can do about it. Certainly nothing we as individuals could do. But in fact, we've been finding in our own laboratory research that small, small psychological interventions, small changes to people's values, small nudges in certain directions can restore levels of egalitarianism and empathy. For instance, reminding people of the benefits of cooperation or the advantages of community cause wealthier individuals to be just as egalitarian as poor people. In one study, we had people watch a brief video, just 46 seconds long, about childhood poverty that served as a reminder of the needs of others in the world around them. And after watching that, we looked at how willing people were to offer up their own time to a stranger presented to them in the lab who was in distress. After watching this video, an hour later, rich people became just as generous of their own time to help out this other person, a stranger, as someone who's poor, suggesting that these differences are not innate or categorical, but are so malleable to slight changes in people's values and little nudges of compassion and bumps of empathy. So perhaps there is hope for the rich yet, even for the filthy rich. We go back to Zacchaeus, the filthy rich man. You know, I, I really think that he was just a curious, short, wealthy, greedy man. And I don't think that he got it, he had it all planned like, oh, today, you know, today I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to repent and I'm going to change. I believe he climbed up that tree just to see, out of curiosity. And, and that nobody noticed him. Nobody noticed that there was this short, greedy, wealthy man up a tree. But he was noticed. 
he was noticed, and then he was touched by grace. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Nobody would have called Zacchaeus by name. By the way, Zacchaeus means pure and righteous, and that he wasn't. Zacchaeus would have been called by every Hebrew bad word expletive, I think. If they know Hokkien, they would call him in Hokkien as well. Nobody would call Zacchaeus pure and righteous, but Jesus did. So what happened when Jesus called Zacchaeus by the good name that his parents were hoping that he would grow up to be? Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And all the cursing and the spitting that they would have reserved for Zacchaeus now got transferred to Jesus. And Zacchaeus would have seen that this holy man, Jesus, now suddenly took all the scorn that was meant for him upon himself. And it was just like pouring it out on Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus, who was disowned by his own people and probably even by his own parents, now acknowledged by Jesus as son of Abraham. Now, in the New Testament, there are only three references to the son of Abraham. Two of them referred to Jesus in the genealogies. The third one was reserved for Zacchaeus. And I think this very act of grace, of just calling Zacchaeus, hey, pure and righteous, come down, I need to go to your house. Nobody goes to your house, it's a big one. And, and it's got like metal gates all over the place in case you of your money, but I will come to your house. And I'm calling you pure and righteous. Something broke in Zacchaeus, in his heart, in his spirit. And then money ceased to be Zacchaeus' source of security and significance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus became poor. He took on the scorn. He took our sins. Though he was sinless, he became poor so that we might be filled with the richness, with the riches of his grace. And the grace of Jesus gave Zacchaeus real riches, real security, and real significance. And this grace trumps greed, trumps over our natural base instincts. And this grace changes us from being a greedy person to a generous person. It changed Zacchaeus. And you know the story. Zacchaeus gave half his net worth to the poor. And for those whom he had cheated, he gave 1.2 times, 20% more. Because, but by Jewish law, he only... No, no, sorry, he gave four times, right? If I cheated some, one of you of $100, Zacchaeus said, I give you back $400. By Jewish law, he only needed to give back 1.2 times, 20%. So what happened? What happened? I think simple. Zacchaeus produced fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke chapter 3 verse 8 is just the fruit 
of his repentance that he will give so generously. And in that same way, Jesus gave us the right to become children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. We receive and we become the children of God. And it took that supreme act of grace accomplished by blood on the cross, accomplished by scorn and sacrifice and pain and death on the cross to change the heart of a man, of Zacchaeus and of all of us. And so I think that Professor Piff in that video, I think he was too optimistic that all it needed to change a man from greed to generosity are what he calls small psychological interventions, small nudges. I don't know, it may be true for you, but I think he was kind of optimistic. It's not small psychological interventions or small nudges, it's grace, capital G, grace. Grace forgives, but more importantly, grace gives, and gives cheerfully, not grudgingly. And you know, 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 7, like God loves a cheerful giver. That word, the Greek word for cheerful is hilaros. It means hilarious. It's that, that overwhelming joy, the, the freedom of, of like Zacchaeus. I, what? I give half, okay? Half my net worth I give away. And if I've cheated you, four times, four times. And you can almost sense the joy, that freedom that Zacchaeus has when he was able to give hilariously, joyfully, cheerfully. You know, in, in our culture, we are constantly bombarded with this holy grail of economic growth, GDP growth. And I admit that I swallow this hook, line and sinker. You know the theories of Adam Smith, which uh, we learned, or I learned, when I was like, what is it, A-levels, uh, 17 years old? That each person should pursue only his own self-interest. Don't care about others. Your self-interest. And then there is this invisible hand which will guide societies to efficient markets and to economic growth. Or economists like Walter Williams, will, he's got his website, um, called Greed, and he's got his article called Greed versus Compassion. He will teach, he will teach these things. And let me quote to you. For me, for Walter, uh, what's his name? Walter Williams. For me, the noblest of human motivations is greed. And I don't mean, I don't mean theft or fraud or tricks or misrepresentation. By greed, I mean being only or mostly concerned with getting the most one can for oneself and not necessarily concerned about the welfare of others. That is the most noblest of human motivations. So he teaches. And we all swallow it, hook, line, and sinker in the name of modern economics. But once in a while, you will get a, a book like this, The Gods That Failed, and how blind faith in markets has cost us our future. Indeed, a God that moves like an invisible hand, that blind faith in counterfeit gods of the free market. Now, it's not to say that these economic theories are entirely incorrect. It's just that they are incomplete. Because it cannot only be about self-interest exclusively, and that this self-interest is now being worshipped, 
Let me now show you one last scientific paper from Harvard and Northwestern universities. It's called Economics, Education, and Greed. Um, there are three studies there, but I want to refer you to study number three, where the abstract says, study number three shows that a short statement on the benefits of self-interest could bolster greed's moral acceptability. What, happened, what is this study? The subjects uh, are made to read either a pro-greed statement or a neutral uh, statement or an anti-greed statement. Then they fill up this form and they ask for their opinions of the benefits of greed, the, its goodness, and its morality. So I hope this comes out okay. Yeah? So the, the blue parts, okay, whether you read the pro-greed statement, the anti-greed statement, or the neutral statement, when it comes to the goodness and the correctness, uh, it's sort of the same. No statistical significance between what you read. The red one is the worrying one. If you read the pro-greed statements, you have a significant increase, statistically significant increase, in the idea that greed is not really a moral problem. And you know, I read that pro-greed statement, which actually I read to you from Walter William and from Adam Smith a little bit earlier. It only took me 1 minute 11 seconds to read. And it changes my morality to think that, ah, greed, no problem. It's not a moral issue. And people are being influenced by the morality of greed just by reading 1 minute 11 seconds. Now, can you imagine being bombarded daily by economics textbooks and even the media about economic growth, 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 self-interest, self-interest. Greed is good, no problem. Can you imagine what has happened? And that's why Jesus says that we must be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. It's insidious. It's camouflaged as normal economics. Now, as one non-greedy person preaching to a non-greedy congregation... <laughs> got to obey Jesus' command to be on our guard. How? Well, first of all, don't conform. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't put blind faith in the so-called free markets that on the, and the mantra that greed is good, it drives society competitive. Greed is good. Don't conform to the worldly idea that is like that. And then, it is not only self-interest. It is the interest of others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Each of you should, not only, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think this is the key point. Pursuit of self-interest is not incorrect. It's just incomplete. Even the Bible says so. so yes, pursue it. But not only that, look to the interests of others. And the next verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was Son of God, did not have this sense of entitlement, right? I'm the Son of God, I'm deserving of this. We need to guard against this sense 
of entitlement, that maybe it's just a flip of the divine heavenly coin that you are here, we are here in Singapore and not born as Rohingyas in Myanmar or fleeing Syria, trying to climb, climb onto boats to get to the south of, of Europe. Guard against this sense of entitlement, the hardening of our hearts, the, the lack of empathy, that our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, of grace. As we have freely received, we freely give. So don't conform. And it's not only self-interest, but the interest of others. Have the attitude of grace, same attitude of Jesus. And then the second part of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We renew our minds with reminders. Right? If you put renew and minds together, it's reminders. And preparing this sermon was a very timely reminder for me that I don't think I'm greedy. No, I don't love money. But I think I do. And that's what I'm going to do, to renew your minds, to remind you, and for all of us to say that this could easily be a problem for me. This problem, this sin of, of greed, of the love of money, which all of us here will say, hey, it's not a problem for me, to say that it could very well be a problem for me, the love of money and how money changes me. And that it is not just small nudges or psychological interventions that we need. We need to be constantly renewing our mind. We need to be constantly reminded of grace and the gospel of grace. That grace begets grace. That generosity begets generosity. That grace is the antidote for this disease of greed. And we, we know that we have to overcome this counterfeit God of money. And we know that how if we are able to be like Zacchaeus, to give generously, to give cheerfully, hilariously. And that's why we must worship the, the God of grace and we worship together on Sunday Every week, we remind ourselves that our security, our significance is not in money, but in the Almighty. And that's why we listen to sermons on Sundays, no matter how badly preached uh, it is, to let the biblical words of grace fill our hearts, to cleanse our deceitful hearts. That's why we are cheerful givers on, on Sundays, to practice what is preached. That's why we practice the fruit of repentance, if we are able to give. And so that our hearts don't become hardened and we are reminded there is a hurting world out there which can be changed only by the grace of God. That's why we go capping. We go knocking on doors. That's why we go on mission trips. We nurture hearts that can empathize, hearts of compassion. And we break down this heart that is naturally hardened with this sense of entitlement. So a good test for our hearts, whether it is hardened, cannot empathize, no compassion, or, or seduced with this sense of entitlement, is whether we are able to give, and not just give grudgingly, but to give generously, graciously, cheerfully. I think that is a very good test. May I have the worship team to come and help us with the closing song? Let me just tell you a last story. Well, be on a guard here. I don't want to repeat all, this, all these points here, but it is just so insidious, so hidden that uh, 
I had great difficulty coming to grasp uh, with it in this sermon. But a lovely little story that I've heard some time ago, and I believe I've told it here before, I want to remind you by the renewing of your minds is, you know, a, a traveler was traveling, sort of like making a pilgrimage. Along the road, he met another traveler. And when they sat down for lunch together, he spied into the other guy's bag and he saw this precious jewel, a precious gem in the bag. And he asked the other traveler, may I take a look at it? And the other traveler said, yeah, oh, go take a look, be my guest. So he took a look at it. Wow, this precious jewel is so fantastic, so expensive. Uh, have you had it value? Oh yeah, very expensive. So as they got up to resume the travels, this time they parted ways. The stranger said, nah, you can take this. Take that precious jewel. And so this guy took the precious jewel, went on his way. But that same night, he couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep because he had this precious jewel with him. And the next day, he ran back the other direction, chased down the stranger, and handed the precious jewel back to the stranger. He says, nah, I don't want this. I want something of higher value. And then the stranger was kind of surprised. What more higher value than this big piece of precious jewel gem? And, and the guy says, I want that which allowed you to give me something so valuable. Grace. I want that. It's not that jewel. It's that heart of grace. And I, and I pray that we too as we battle, I think, constantly. I think if you read the book, Tim Keller says that this, this counterfeit God cannot be removed. Okay, I don't have time to work out the theology of it. He says it can only be replaced. And if he is correct, then it's got to be re- replaced by this heart of grace. And the moment you are able to give hilariously, cheerfully, it's like, oh, wow, I just gave $2,000. Like, then you know that your heart has been changed that the gospel of grace have touched your heart. So now let's turn to this song to help motivate our hearts as well. What did this person who gave the alabaster jar gave? One year salary. Okay, think about it, okay? What causes in this world you would give a year's salary to? And then you think about what God has given to us, that we are not Rohingyas, We are not Syrians escaping Syria. How does that impact us? So we rise and sing this song together.
dedicate ourselves to the Lord. The Bible says, first give yourselves to the Lord. It's not about even physical things that we can give to God. Let's first give ourselves to the Lord. and Let's have this song minister to our hearts. Here I am, Lord, take me. I am the offering. Every heartbeat that you have blessed me with, it is for your glory. But we want to acknowledge how insidious this God of money can be and we want to be on our guard. We do not want to be conformed to the ways of this world. We do not want only to pursue our own self-interest but to the interest, look to the interest of others. We want our attitude to be that of Christ Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor for us. And we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we want to see the results of that by having a heart that is just like Jesus, giving and giving, even cheerfully and hilariously. So God, I pray that you would change our hearts, guard our hearts, enable us to have that same attitude of Christ. As we go out from here, help us, Lord, to impact a world that is hurting, a world that in some ways has been conquered by this counterfeit God of money. And let us be your agents of grace, the salt to the earth, to prevent the rotting of this world because we can make a change and we can make an impact. So go, brothers and sisters in PPH, make that impact for Christ with a heart of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.